Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 58, the story of David and Goliath. Though despite the children's stories, uh, despite the little ditties that some of us know from Sunday school, it is in fact a very long story with lots of detail and action, lots of words recounted, which is perhaps why it is so well known not only among Christian circles, but outside. On this Sunday morning, as we remember and celebrate fathers, as uh, is, is Juneteenth, and many are celebrating the announcement of, of freedom for slaves, we come now to celebrate a greater honor, a greater freedom, a greater deliverance, as we celebrate the Lord's work among his people. So let me invite you now to attend to the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 58. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of this Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. 
And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke these same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he went sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armories of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me. In the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook. And put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have already blessed us. For we have heard the word that you have preserved by your spirit. The testimony of your deliverance of Israel. The victory that you granted David. The defeat of the one who defied the enemies of you, O living God. And yet, Lord, not only in the initial hearing, but also in the studying, in the submission of our wills and our bodies to your living and active word, would you now help us? Would we hear? Would we obey? Work this among us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. A few years ago, I read a book by a Christian professor of literature called On Reading Well. On Reading Well. And the book was, had two purposes. The first was to remind us of the importance of virtue. There are many things that offer themselves as the means to living in our world, financial success, fame, security, but she wanted to draw us back to the Christian virtues, to the classic virtues of, of courage, of love, and so on. But the next thing that she wanted to do is, is to tell us that virtue is something that we can learn, certainly within our own lives, but we also have the opportunity to learn virtue through reading, through literature. That when we read a story we often connect ourselves to the main characters in the story. And so as their journey, as their path, as their circumstances brings decisions, and sometimes they make good decisions, sometimes they make bad decisions, that they can learn from those decisions. And the consequences of their actions uh, lay out a path for us to say, if I was to be in this situation in the future, I now know what the circumstances might result in. 
We, we can learn the importance of courage. We can learn the importance of tr- truthfulness. We can understand the importance of charity by identifying with people and stories. And so reading good literature can help shape us into godly men and women as we learn virtue through the lessons of those stories. We see this in parables. We, we see this in, in some of our favorite stories that we, we retell ourselves and our children because we can learn, not just through the actions of real people, but even those in literature. But one of the important things, if we're to learn the right lessons, is to connect with the right people. I might give an illustration. Think, think of Shakespeare's classic, Romeo and Juliet. A story of love, of idealistic devotion. Continues to be one of the most popular love stories in all of Western history. However, when we read it, or when we go see it on a stage, most of the lessons that we are supposed to learn are not from Romeo and Juliet. Even though they're the primary characters... Really, the lesson, if we are to learn from it, is to identify not with these two star-crossed lovers, but with their families. The Capulets and the Montesquieu's. Because what we see in the story is the danger of hatred, of vengeance, of ongoing family feuds. A danger not just for the heads of the families, but for others who are caught up. And so... Romeo and Juliet become a lens by which we would see the destructive forces of vengeance and anger and wrath. The same is true with this morning story, though it is not the creation of a playwright. This is history. History by which we might learn true things about ourselves and how to act in the world. But like with Romeo and Juliet, we need to make sure that we are identifying with the right characters. We are often encouraged to be like many people in Scripture. And it's true that we can learn examples from Abraham, from, from Daniel, from, from Peter, from Saul, from David. But when we come to this passage that seems so well known to us, I want to encourage us this morning that if we are to learn what God has for us from this passage to not identify ourselves with David. Yes, we can learn from him, his faith, his confidence in the Lord, his boldness, his service of his father. But in understanding our connection to the story it is not primarily through David, and don't worry, it's not Goliath. It's through the Israelites. Just as the Capulets and the Montesquieu's seem in the background of the story of Romeo and Juliet, the Israelites are primarily in the background in this passage. But they are the people that we should see ourselves in. As God's chosen people, beloved of the Lord, invited into Canaan, promised that they would experience blessing and honor as God's treasured possession if if they followed him. They are here faced with an enemy. And what is their response? Fear. For 40 days, the enemy of God's people lays out insults not only upon them as men, but upon God, defying the armies of the living God. And instead of meeting the challenge, instead of ignoring the challenge, 
They respond with fear and dismay. We often can be like the Israelites. God's people chosen, loved, and yet when we face opposition, when we face persecution, when we face danger, oftentimes we are tempted into the same faithlessness, the same fearfulness, the same dismay, where the danger and opposition, the persecution that we face, seems bigger than the possibility of victory and deliverance that we might have in the Lord. If we, this morning, are to have confidence as God's people, that we can, quote-unquote, overcome the Goliaths in our life. The only way that we will overcome the Goliaths in our lives is not by seeing ourselves in David, but seeing ourselves as helpless, harassed, harried men and women in need of a deliverer. That's who we are. And when we acknowledge that, then we can come and we can learn what God has from us by paying attention to the enemy and paying attention to the hero of the story. First, let's pay attention to the enemy, to the big, bad, scary Goliath. And, and let's be clear. Part of the, the appeal of this story, not only for Christians but throughout history, is, is the badness of the scariness of Goliath. He is described in terms that would indicate that he is over nine feet tall. He is clad in armor from head to toe. His legs are covered. He's, his torso is covered. He has a helmet upon his head. He is more armored than the typical soldier. If you remember, we read earlier that only Saul and a select few of his family had any armor at all. Here he is armored head to toe. And even the Philistines normally fought not with helmets, but with feathered headdresses. And so here we have this champion arrayed in every conceivable weapon of war. And not only is he formidable, but he is angry. He knows how to cut with his words. He knows how to instill fear in those that hear his threats. He knows that for 40 days, breathing out the same threats has a demoralizing effect upon God's people. And so in verse 11 and verse 24, we see the response of God's people. Verse 11 describes it thusly. When Saul, not just Israel, but when Saul, the king, meant to lead Israel, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were much afraid. When, when facing opposition, when facing persecution, when confronting sin in our life that seems overwhelming, we need to ask, what is causing that fear? What is causing that sense of danger? What is leading to that sense of dismay? Are we assessing the enemy clearly? One of the things that we need to consider when we look at this passage and when we look at the opposition that we face in our own life is what are we comparing our opposition to? See, these individuals, these men of the ranks of the army of Israel, they look at Goliath and they compare Goliath to themselves. Goliath is inviting them to one-on-one -on -one combat. But here's the thing. There is nothing that says they have to fight him one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe only their honor... They want to be the champion. 
And yet they are tempted to believe the only way that I can have victory in this circumstance is if I can be stronger, if I can be a better soldier, a better warrior than Goliath. So very often, the illusion of that which we are facing is that we are meant to face it alone. When Paul writes the church in Philippi, whom he loves so very much, a church who is likely to have had a lot of military veterans because Philippi was populated and established by military veterans, he said this in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the, face, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. As the Philippians are being persecuted and they are wondering how they would continue to go forth with the gospel, Paul doesn't say, would you be individuals of virtue? Would you be individuals of power? Would you be individuals of faith? No, what he says is, I want to find out that you are living according to the gospel in your unity together. That you stand firm together with one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened. He's saying your ability to withstand the opposition and persecution you're facing is not your individual strength. It is the church that God has given you. As the Israelites face Goliath, they forget that they are not alone, that they are an army that God has provided for his people. We are not alone. But even then, it's not just Goliath versus me, nor is it Goliath versus the army. We should not be measuring the strength of Goliath against any Israelite soldier because Goliath is not ultimately arrayed against Israel because Israel is not the one who will grant victory. We should be comparing the strength, the prowess of Goliath against God. Because that's the one he's truly aligning himself against. That's what sin is aligned against. That's what persecution is aligned against. It may come through the avenue of us, through personal persecution, through personal temptation, through personal sufferings in our life, but it is always arrayed against the goodness and power of the living God. So very often people shame us Personally, and we fear that personal shame instead of finding the greater honor in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. We might be tempted to see the financial difficulties that we might face in our lives instead of considering the power and wealth of the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Even when the specter of death raises its head and we say, who am I to stand up against death? What can I do against cancer? What can I do against the violence that surrounds us? The answer is, we? Nothing. But Jesus has already defeated death. We don't have to say, can I stand up to death? Can I stand up to violence? Can I stand up to corruption? We need to say, what has God done and what is God able to do? Now, I say this not to deny that there is real harm. There is real pain. There is real loss that can come from persecution. Had Israel denied and ignored the taunts of Goliath and actually fought the Philistines arrayed against them, there would have been losses. 
But so very often our fearful response, our lack of trust, our fear that God has abandoned us comes from amplifying the threats that we face. From seeing them in isolation from our brothers and sisters that God has provided. From comparing the strength of that opposition to our strength instead of the Lord's strength. Because so very often the size and strength of what we are facing is often an illusion. The more that I study this passage, the more I've become convinced that I am sure that Goliath was a warrior who had prowess. But more and more as I look at him, I think he is more of a projection of power than as fully powerful. Consider the weight of what he's wearing. The armor that he's wearing just around his chest would have weighed 125 pounds. The spear point, the point of his spear, not the spear itself, just the point of the spear that's described as made of iron, it's 15 pounds. How much does a modern shot put weigh that the most elite athlete is not able to throw but has to put is 16 pounds? Not to mention the fact that many commentators talk about the fact that uh, the, the genetic Realities that would have led to a man being so tall often bring with it eyesight troubles. That this is potentially why Goliath is talking about sticks, fully ignoring the fact that there is a sling. The fact that he has a shield bearer might not have only been to carry the weight of the shield, but to have a set of eyes in front of him. And so Goliath is using his intimidation, is using his power. Well, Goliath isn't leading a charge into battle. Goliath isn't depending on the strength of the Philistines. He is hoping that 40 days of demeaning and diminishing and threatening and intimidating the people will result. And even if they are able to raise up a champion, he will be so demoralized that the projection of his victory will ensure his victory. One of the lessons that's been learned in the warfare in Ukraine is that tanks, for as scary as a tank is, for as well armored as a tank is, for how formidable the main weapons of a tank are, tanks are actually very vulnerable means of warfare. They're meant to be used with other tanks, with coverage, with good communications. And so the Ukrainians have withstood the, the assaults of the tanks and the tank commanders in Ukraine well. Why? Because they saw that the intimidation factor of the tanks is not equivalent to their ability to bring their power to bear. The more I look at this passage, the more that I see that Goliath is more bark than bite. Not that he's not without any bite. But the whole armor, his size, strikes me more as theatrics meant to intimidate than indications of Goliath's particular prowess. And this is satanic. Hear me, I'm not saying Goliath is Satan, but I'm and saying the way he conducts himself is consistent with Satan in the sense that he is a real danger, but he is often most dangerous when we believe his hype. When confronted with sexual temptation to assume it's too strong, why resist? When we see the strands of corruption, sin, and confusion in our culture are so strong, we can be tempted to not engage but only to retreat from the world instead of communicating the hope of the gospel. We see loved ones or neighbors who seem so far gone in their sin that we believe that God's power is not sufficient to rescue. 
Brothers and sisters, those opposed to us, those opposed to God's people, those opposed to the truth, they are real. But let us not let the opposition dictate the terms, confuse us or isolate us. Let us not deny the possibility of victory that God can and will rescue his people. Which brings us to our hero. Who is the hero? Well, first we should ask, who should be the hero? Goliath is described as this giant who is head and shoulders above all with his great height. If anyone is to go toe-to-toe with such a tall giant, who should it be? But Saul, who is head and shoulders above his own Israelites, who is the king, the one who has armor, the one who should lead his people. But as we've seen, Saul has failed to be the king that God wants for his people because he was the king after the people's own desires. And so it's not Saul that goes out to be the champion of God's people. No, it's one that's not expected. The one that God raises up is not one that they're looking for. Eliab, the eldest brother of, the oldest son of Jesse, sees David coming and asking these questions. And and it seems like he's assuming that David is wanting to know, well, what's the guy going to get that's, that beats the Philistines? Oh, he's going to get to marry the daughter. Oh, his, his father's household will be free of taxes. You're, you're just a busybody, David. You want to see the battle? You're interested in the gossip. But, but if you pay attention, the point of his question is this. As David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's like, what does it matter what they get? Should we be fighting this man so that we can win honor, so that we can get a tax-free status? Or should we be fighting this person because he is an uncircumcised Philistine opposing God? And when Eliab assumes that he is unable to do it, when Saul says to David after bringing him to the tent, you are a youth unable to do it, God shows himself able to bring up the one that we least expect. So that when the son of Mary the carpenter's son, comes proclaiming the gospel and healing. Many, even in his own town, doubt that he can be the one that can deliver them. Yet, though he is unexpected, he is not unprepared. First of all, we know that the Lord has already prepared him. The Lord has already appointed him. We read last week of Samuel anointing him as the one set apart to come after Saul to replace him. He's been prepared by the Lord beforehand. When his flocks have been attacked, he's learned warfare and battle to fight off those that would flee, that would take away his sheep, who would diminish the flock. He knows how to wield weapons. He's a shepherd. Notice his description here as he he answers Saul about why he can fight this battle. He said, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. You hear that? Not I prevented it. But when it would seem lost, when the sheep is already in the grips of the mouth of the beast, the shepherd heart of this young man was to go and not give up on that sheep, but to strike the beast and deliver it. What we have here 
which points to the, to the fact that so much in Near Eastern culture that kings were described as shepherds because the role of a king is not ultimately victory, it's not ultimately wealth, but they are to engage in battle because their job is to protect the flock of the people, to nourish and provide for them. And David, he is unable to wear the garments of Saul. He's not going to be a king like Saul as he puts off his armor. He is going to go forth as a shepherd who has not only delivered his sheep from the past, but now that he sees his own countrymen assaulted and assailed, he says in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He's not going out to fight for his glory. He's going out to fight for his brethren who he sees a responsibility for. God raises an an unexpected champion, one that the Lord has already prepared, one with the shepherd's heart, and one that is faithful, trusting the Lord, not himself. Listen to verses 45 through 47, this speech, as he confronts the Philistine. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you in my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Where is the confidence of David? Not in himself. His confidence is in the Lord. Not in his weapons, but in the Lord. The demonstration of his faithfulness, not only to vindicate the Lord, but to vindicate the Lord before his brethren, so that they would know that the Lord lives. And he knows this, he's able to be faithful because he knows God will be faithful. This is not just faith for the sake of faith. This is not believism. But he has reason to believe because the one he believes in is the living God who has demonstrated his love and faithfulness. Who shows the difference between belief for the sake of saying what God owes us versus belief for the sake of God. You think of, of Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. He was taken to the highest pinnacle of the temple. And what does Satan say? Throw yourself down. That you would show yourself to be the son of God that you would be delivered. Jesus says no to that. He says no to that demonstration that God will care for and provide and protect him. Why? Because it would be for his sake. But in Luke 23, verse 46, as Jesus is breathing his last breath, as he is going into battle with sin, death, and Satan itself, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His belief was not for the sake of himself. His belief was because he trusted the faithfulness of God to bring about what God desired. And in it, he vindicates justice. David defeats the enemy of God and his people. It seems apropos that this great blasphemer of God is killed with a stone, what the law demanded as the way to execute the blasphemer. David demonstrates that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. That is the one chosen by God because God fights the battles of his people. We've examined our enemy. We've examined our hero. God has not left his people without a 
a champion. He has raised up an unexpected one, a, a champion, one who fights not for his own glory, but because he trusts in the Lord. But we do need to ask, what will our response be? At the end of the passage, there's this kind of weird scene for us. There's a quick flashback as David goes out to fight Goliath, where Saul asks Abner, whose son is this? Remember, David has been in his court, but he's come and he's gone. And Saul would have had many servants. But now that there's a possibility that this man would become essentially part of the court, that his his father's household could become tax-free. He wants to know who is this going to be? How is this going to impact me? Whose son are you, young man? Now he asked after the victory, and David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the following verses reveal the intentions of Saul. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, it would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. When we resume this series, we're going to take a break for summer, but when we resume this series in the fall, we'll come back to this passage. But note the difference between Saul and Jonathan. Saul wants to know whose son David is so that he can bring David into his own tent, into his own kingdom for his own purposes, so that as Saul has done throughout his rule, he can benefit from the strength of others. How can I benefit from his victory? Where was, what does Jonathan do? He commits himself to David. He sees the deliverance of David, the faithfulness of David, and commits himself to David rather than taking David to himself. Brothers and sisters, if we are to understand David and Goliath, this important passage aright, we need to ask, will we make the victory of Jesus about us? Is the victory over Jesus over sin, death, and the evil one for our own ends? To think that he did it for us because we deserve it. Or so that we could share in our own personal glory so that we could be built up. Or will we see that if Jesus is the Lord's chosen, like David, the one who overcomes when we are overcome with fear, the one who is faithful when we are fearful, the one who fights on our behalf even when we have already given up, the one who sees through the illusions and lies to proclaim the truth, the one who brings justice and deliverance, is the victory for us and about us? Or is the victory so that we can share in what is already the victors? Only when we see that we aren't the king, only when we see that we shouldn't be Saul and aren't David, are we able to take our part in the story, to be those blessed by the and beloved by the Lord, who sends us a deliverer that we might share in that victory. Victory, brothers and sisters, comes when we say, I'm not David. I am not the Christ. I am not the deliverer. But Jesus is. That is how we overcome. Not by girding ourselves up, but by realizing Christ has already overcome. And that is our hope of victory. Let's pray.
O Lord, so much more as with any passage could be said. But what is true and fruitful that has been said about your word this morning, would it find its way deep into our hearts and our lives, and would all that fell short be quickly forgotten? We pray this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.